Welcome to the service tonight. And I know so many of you, uh, it's, it's real privilege to stand and talk. Um, if you've, if it's the first time to this church, then that's great. Welcome to, you haven't been in ages, well welcome back. <laughs> it's great to see you. Um, so I don't know if you've been to some of the evening services over the last couple of weeks. Okay, so we've been in the uh, Beatitudes, get that right, um, in chapter 5. Uh, and so Joe talked a couple of weeks ago on uh, verse 3, which is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Mark taught last week on, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And today... Verse 5, which is, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit, and it says earth in the NIV, but the original Greek word is better, the land. They'll inherit the land. So, I mean, this is, and Joe read out the rest of the Beatitudes, and, um, you know, they are an astonishing bit of teaching by Jesus. Uh, And you just think they kind of rise on the Bible like a mountain. It's astonishing. So um, so the passage is, is quite short, but I'll speak for ages, so that's great. <laughs> and, and I guess you could look at it and just think, well, it seems pretty straightforward. Um, Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Um, and, you know, it's a bit like a soundbite, maybe. Um, but I kind of think, you ever think, well, who are the meek? Who are, who are these? Who are these people? What does it mean to inherit the earth? You know, is this something for uber-Christians like Phil Day on the worship? (laughs) He's really meek, I think. (laughs) Um, And I was talking to my car sharer, I go into work, and I said, I've got to preach on this passage, and I read it out. So what do you think that means? And he goes, I think it's just for heaven. I was like, okay, all right. (laughs) So is it, is it a spiritual thing, or is, is it like an earthly thing for now? So I, I think um, looking at this passage, it it helps to know what's going on in the gospel story at the time. Uh, and so we're going to look a bit at that tonight, going to go back a bit to what was going on, kind of peel it back uh, to the situation. And, and I hope tonight that all of us uh, meet Jesus through this. And most of all, that we have our imaginations converted and challenged. Because like we, this world... It needs um, people of light to help out. Like, there's stuff to do out there, and God wants to involve you in it. So here we are in the Sermon on the Mount. So there's a big block of teaching in Matthew. And at this point in the Gospel story, like the 12 disciples, they haven't been sort of picked out yet by Jesus. And we see in chapter 4 what Jesus has been doing. So he was like based in Capernaum at the time, but he was wandering around the sort of shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he was like calling people and he called some of the fishermen who later became the chosen disciples. So he'd call in Peter, Andrew, James and John. And he, it talks about that he went about teaching and announcing the good news of the kingdom and healing people. And it talks about large crowds were following Jesus. So clearly he was saying something 
that was like resonating with them. So it wasn't just the healing, which that was probably pretty amazing seeing that, but he was saying something. This uh, announcement of the um, of the kingdom, you know, and that word announcing, the Greek word is euangelion, where we get evangelical from and evangelism. So it's announcing, announcing of this kingdom. So these these crowds, they weren't just following a sort of abstract gospel, so to speak, or an individualistic gospel. Jesus was resonating with a deep cultural hope. Uh, and the Jewish story, like I wind back, not too far away to Genesis, but winding back, and it was a bit of a roller coaster ride. So, so God rescued them from exile in, in Egypt, uh, and so, right, I've saved you from that. So that was kind of God's grace <laughs> that saved them. And he said, I'm going to give you a new way of, of living to be my people as a light to the world. But like tragically, tragically, if you follow the story, they don't, they just kind of keep getting it wrong. And sometimes almost get it right, but no, no, it goes wrong again. And the sort of Genesis fall pattern just kind of repeats, 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 repeats as the story goes on. Uh, and so idolatry, that was a big thing. That's they couldn't basically put God at the center of their lives. They had like bad leaders. They're not very good. Even Solomon, who looked like, no, no, he failed as well. <laughs> and so this is what it was like. And then, you know, eventually they were exiled off into Babylon and the nation failed. And they had to come back, to point out in Nehemiah, but there was still a feeling that they were uh, in exile. They're still ruled by foreign kings or bad leaders. And so this, and this went on for centuries. <laughs> This, this state. And God hadn't returned to the temple and the people prayed and they were hoping and the prophets talked about that one day God would come back personally in some way and make it all right. Make everything right. And that was the hope. That God would return and bring his right rule bring healing, replace their deadened hearts with life, and end this exile, restore them to the land free of pagan rulers, and establish his kingdom. So this was the hope that these crowds have. And in announcing the gospel, this is what Jesus was saying, was starting to happen in him and through him. So that's why... (laughs) That's why they were following him. And this is the frame, this story, this massive hope for the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom was being announced and the Sermon on the Mount encapsulated the teachings of Jesus. So if we go back to the beginning of chapter 5, which Joe didn't read, but that's okay. <laughs> and it talks about, so Jesus saw these these crowds wandering around following him and he and he he went up to a mountainside and, and sat down. Now, I don't know, do any of you like use Wikipedia for stuff? It's quite good, isn't it? I mean, I use it for work. No, I don't do that. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't know if you know, like, what's quite cool about it is that, you know, if you're following interesting thing, you can click on other links and go down all these tangents and explore all these different areas. 
And so there's a little, like, the Gospels are full of Wikipedia links. Some of them which are really obvious, and some which are more allusions. And there's one here, at the start of chapter 5. So Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and sat down. And that attitude of sitting down, so that's when a rabbi is going to teach. And this reference to a mountain, so there's a lot of symbolism and meaning there. And there's a Wikipedia link. <laughs> Back to Moses and the giving of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is like a, a kind of new Moses, but then more than Moses. And he's about to give his new moral vision. So he's announced the kingdom. He's going to save them. This is going to be the new moral vision. And so the Sermon on the Mount it unfolds the moral vision of Jesus. And ultimately it requires and demands nothing less than our entire conversion of our imaginations from tip to toe to our very core. And his vision, like it's, it's really potent. It's really political. It's really divisive. And so like tonight, like we can sit down with the disciples, with these crowds, and we can listen to Jesus as he teaches us. But we're always left, always left, with, well, are we going to follow Jesus in this vision? Or are we not? It kind of, it, it puts that to you, these, these chapters in Matthew. So I just, just want to do a little exercise here. So I want to kind of imagine that you're there. You're at this mountainside. And you're sitting there, and the first thing you'd notice um, uh, in this moral vision that Jesus has is that it seems to be for the wrong type of people. So around you, you know, there's like fishermen, uh, there's like poor, the poor, and the sick people. Uh, there's people with no power. Uh, there's probably prostitutes. There's people on the receiving end of injustice, had it all their life. And there's nothing they could do about it. So in short, the people around you, they're like the marginalized. They're the nobodies. And Jesus is speaking to these nobodies. And so you just think, gosh, one of the most astonishing pieces of literature or preaching in entire human history on moral vision was spoken to nobodies. That says something about God and about Jesus. Like, quite astonishing. Quite astonishing. And so these nobodies, they're hoping for Israel's God to come back and make all things right. And Jesus says to them, like, you guys, you are blessed. So it's not something they, like, have earned. He's declaring that they are blessed and have God's favour. Their social status, their circumstances... It doesn't, doesn't count against anything in God's eyes. It says they're blessed. And so, you know, we are rather privileged, aren't we, to live in this amazing country, one of the richest countries on the planet. And I think it's, oh, well, you know, I know, I say for me, I think it's hard for, to catch the heart of this vision. <laughs> and, it, and I feel uncomfortably challenged by it. 
And I wonder, you know, do we see ourselves as somebodies rather than nobodies? And indeed, do we exclude the nobodies from our church family? And the Bible continually emphasizes the importance of God's justice to some of these people. So this idea of the quartet of the vulnerable in the Bible, the widows, the poor, the orphans, and the immigrants. And I mean, are we for these people? Are our hearts softened to these people? Because the bigger truth is, is that we are all actually nobodies. But Jesus is the somebody. And he identifies with the nobodies and incorporates them into him. Okay, so these are the people listening to the Sermon on the Mount, the nobodies. They're declared blessed. And we encounter some of these nobodies, the meek. And I wonder what comes into your head when you hear the word meek. What category drops into your mind? And so I was, when I was preparing for this talk, I thought I'd Google a few phrases to see what I'd find. So I typed in meek athletes into Google, no hits. <laughs> I went down 100 pages, no hits. So okay, I'll do something else. Meek politicians, <laughs> no hits. <laughs> that was about the first 200 pages looking down, surely somewhere. <laughs> but I thought, okay, meek Christian leaders, no hits. The first hundred pages. And I put, okay, meek leaders. I got some hits then about sort of management consultants theories. So okay, it's not. Let's look at that stuff. But see, like, meek, it's not a common word. So, like Google's this massive search engine, and they can't find anything looking on the internet. Not very common. It doesn't feature in the Google algorithms, which means there's not many pages out there. People aren't looking at this stuff. And so, if I'm honest, when I hear that word, it does suggest to me weakness. It, that's the category that's in my mind. And there's this guy, Frederick Nietzsche, right? he was a philosopher in the 19th century, and he despised Christianity because he saw it as a religion of the weak. And his, his way of, his vision was, you need to assert and grow your power. So he was completely against it. So this verse... It shakes me. It makes you wonder how much my worldview has been shaped by thoughts that are not God's thoughts, because clearly meekness is relevant to Jesus. So in this passage, the, this is what meekness, I guess, is, according to some theologians. So at its, at its heart, it's about our sort of internal orientation towards God, ourselves and others and the right estimation of ourself in that. So how we are, how we orientate ourselves towards God and relate to him, how we understand ourselves and other people. So it involves humility, a bit like the two Beatitudes before then also involve humility. And it involves our very minds and worldview being reshaped by these teachings of Jesus so I'm going to look at four examples of meekness in this context tonight. And these are very much drawn from my own experiences and thoughts I've had when I've been preparing for this talk. But I'm really conscious that like your journeys and what you encounter could be a bit different. 
you might have other examples. So these are just broad brushstrokes of a larger picture. Ultimately, the Beatitudes always call us to more. So first, the first bit, orientation to God. So like we live in a materialistic world, soaked in consumerism, sexual imagery, and individualism, and status matters. What you do, your job, your vocation, what you have, house or money, that matters in our society. And part of this right orientation to God is having all of this stripped away. So if you've gone to university or whatever, your professional qualifications, your money, your skills, your status, your egos, and realising when all this is gone, that you are a nobody. But God is the somebody who loves you. So how, how you get to this place can vary this understanding your, I guess, status to God. I got this story about, this is my bit of my own testimony, actually. <laughs> and um, so I went to uh, China when I was in my second year at university on a Christian mission. And before this time, I've made a bit of a mess of different bits of my life. So I was in a relationship with a girl. That's not great. And for years, it was for years, and I knew I should end it, but I was too much of a coward. <laughs> I wasn't really centering my life on God. What I wanted to do in my life had gone a bit wrong, and I just wasn't really sure what I'd end up doing. But I astonishingly ended up on this Christian mission. I went to this, this village called Denka, which is on the uh, China-Tibet border, next to the River Yangtze. It's like this just astonishing river. And we were there for weeks. And I went out one night, and, and I, it was like, you know, midnight. Um, and I went onto this, there was this bridge over the Yangtze. And I, and I lay my back, my back on this bridge, looking up at the, the stars. And, you know, and the, the, this astonishing thing is there's like no, no light pollution there at all, like in the mountains, the sort of foothills of the Himalayas. So just like thousands of stars that we just don't see because all our light gets in the way. Um, and, all, and the stars that we do see are so much more brighter there. And I can remember seeing the Milky Way just going across the sky and you see like shooting stars going over. Just like, it's just astonishing beauty. And then beneath me I could hear the roar of this like mighty river Yangtze. And so I was just acutely aware suddenly of how small I was against all this majesty of creation. And then in, in that moment I suddenly became aware of an, an, an other is all I can really say really and it was and, and, the, and this, this other was just much more than all that I could see and, and me and I, I felt like a hair's breadth away from being utterly obliterated <laughs> by this other and everything that I was in that moment was just irrelevant next to this other. I was a nobody, and it was rather scary and terrifying, but I knew who the other was and that I wouldn't be obliterated. And as I was there laying, um, I guess for me it was the clearest that God's ever spoken to me in my life. And it basically said that I was going to go back to England and things are going to happen in my life 
that would involve me, but they were happening because God was willing it. It wasn't me, really. He was deciding it would happen. And I had a strong warning not to forget that, <laughs> that he was going to do it. And I suppose my life now is goes right back to that moment. And I'm just very aware that you know, I'm only the narrator of this story. I'm not the author, but Jesus is. So that's part of my story. And meekness involves a right orientation towards God and us. And you know, this, that may be a dramatic experience, what I needed, uh, be knocked on the head. Or it could be an evolving process. That's the first thing. Okay, second thing. The meek are those who suffer and have been humbled, but they don't seek revenge. They lovingly trust God and his timings, and they live in hope that one day he will put all things right. And then lead up to the coming of Jesus within the Jewish culture, resisting pagan rules. They were quite passionate people, the Jewish people, and often this um, resistance could express itself in violence. So there's a number of incidents. So in 4 BC, there was a Roman general, this guy called Varus, and he crucified 2,000 Jews who rose up in revolution. And in 6 AD, so this would happen while Jesus was young, there was a revolutionary leader called Judas of Galilee, who rose up against the Romans, and he was defeated. So that was quite a thing, this sort of, let's rise up and fight, fight. Uh, and so Jesus, you might have noticed in the Gospels, that he teaches his followers not to be like that, not to respond with aggression and wrath to injustice and wrongs. Instead, he talks about they should absorb it in sort of non-violent, non-retaliatory ways. And this way carried on into the early church. So Paul talks about not using the weapons of this world um, against evil, and that the enemy is not human beings, but the dark forces that sit behind humans. And I was trying to think of someone who um, epitomized this sort of non-violent resistance. And someone did come to mind. <laughs> and I thought about Martin Luther King from America, uh, uh, the civil rights activist. And he had this model of non-violent resistance. Interestingly, he saw the civil rights work that he did as actively living out the gospel into the world. So meekness may seem weak, and it probably is weak in the eyes of our culture, but God is powerful, and his power expresses itself through this way of being human. Okay, another form of meekness. Jesus himself is held up as an example of meekness. And Jesus submitted to God and was a servant to others. And gentleness and kindness were and are part of his character. You know, it talks about as he approached Jerusalem, that final approach, and his heart was filled with compassion. And he talks about longing to gather up the people. And he said this knowing that he seemed to be rejected by those people and would be crucified. So gentleness and kindness. So in the past, I, again, I was thinking about this. So in the past, quite a few years ago now, I was involved in the Lee Abbey youth camps. I don't know if any of you heard of those. And 
Um, the leader at the time, this guy from London, he somehow used to bring every year these just these individuals who would just never normally come to a, a Christian thing. So he'd bring these lads from these London estates um, who just came from terrible backgrounds and would just not fit into sort of middle-class Christianity at all. Um, and, and so one of the leaders, he had, he had his money stolen right for a few of the week. And a few days afterwards, one of these lads, he owned up to stealing all this guy's money. Um, and at, towards the end of the week, this, this, this lad became a, a Christian. And he talked in his testimony about why he decided to become a Christian. Uh, and he said that when he owned up to it, because he felt he should own up to it, he expected to be hit and humiliated by this leader. It's what he expected to happen. It's what happened to him at home. Um, but the leader didn't respond like that. He was gentle and kind and forgiving. He said that was why he decided that it was right, Christianity, and he wanted to follow Jesus. So loving others involves being a different type of human, and that's what meekness involves, loving others, even our enemies, and we all have them. <laughs> and so I was trying to think of finally another type of meekness, and this came to me this morning, I went for a run up in um, the hills around Bath, and it's like really beautiful up there, I don't know if you go for walks all around there, just fantastic, and you see the city, um, western, and all the hills, and I, and I was just thinking, what a fantastic, beautiful country um, that we live in, all on our doorstep. Um, and, but I think meekness, I think part of it is our attitude towards the created world. And Christianity has brought some great things to this country. And in fact, some would say it helped modern science happen. Um, I think one of the unfortunate things, though, is this idea of dominion over nature. And that has been taken up by the Western world and capitalism, and nature is something to be exploited and ruled and taken without consequence. It dominated for material gain. And we're seeing the fruits of this way of thinking as we destroy habitats and species decline. So I was reading about how turtle doves, there's like 99% less of them than there was 20 years ago. Uh, and I don't know if you remember the, the floods from 2014 and this famous satellite imagery of around the Wash and the Bristol Channel, these massive soil plumes going out to sea. So the very soil under our feet has been washed away into the rivers and the sea due to how we manage our landscapes. And then we hear about the mountains, electronic waste, as we upgrade our phones, get the latest kit, things are built to become obsolete. So how we treat our world, and I believe we need to be meek again in our orientation towards creation. It's not about dominating it or subduing it anymore. It's about being in right community with nature. So that's four, I guess, four things. So orientation towards God, um, uh, sort of not responding to injustice, with violence, gentleness and kindness and our attitudes towards our created world. 
And the passage then ends, it has a lot, blessed are the meek, because you will inherit the land. So another Wikipedia link there. <laughs> the mention of the land takes us into the hope that God would restore the people um, to be free of foreign powers, restore them to the land, the promised land, and have good, a good leader, God, not all these bad human kings, but a good leader. So clearly this hasn't happened yet. Um, and Jesus came, established his kingdom, but his kingdom is breaking into this world. So part of this church is we are leaning towards the new heavens and the new earth when this promise will be fully realized. But it's breaking into this reality now. And God is claiming this world, but he doesn't send in the tanks to do his work. He's sending in the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek. And this is needed for our world, for us to identify with the nobodies, to be people defined by God and following his ways, who are gentle and kind and love others. And our society is broken in so many ways of bitterness, division and injustice. And God wants to work with us, wants to convert our imaginations, wants to teach us, wants us to get involved as his new people, embodying the Sermon on the Mount. So we're left with a question. <laughs> the good news has been announced. The king has come. And one day we'll come back and all things will be made new. This kingdom involves an upside-down vision, identifying with the nobodies. And in this moral vision, the meek are declared to have God's favour. And the vision is as shocking and subversive today as it was back then. And we'll need all our imaginations converted every day and worldviews continually reshaped by Jesus, his teachings and his spirit to catch this. So, do we follow Jesus? Do we follow his way? I don't know where you are. <laughs> you might feel like a nobody. So Jesus identifies with you. You might feel challenged by the Spirit, as I was, preparing for this talk. Perhaps you want to orientate yourself towards God in a new way or a fresh way. God wants all of you to involve you in his work. He wants you to think like he thinks about the world, about yourself and about others.